to another Mountain Lion podcast on Bedside Rounding. This is another podcast in the series that I've been doing on Bedside Rounding. And today I have the special guest, Dr. Peter Lickstein from Wake Forest School of Medicine, uh, who is the past program director of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at Wake Forest. And I believe the current, if his term hasn't ended, the ended the current governor of the North Carolina chapter of the American College of Physicians. It just ended on October 1st. Well, con- congratulations. That's a f- Thank you. four-year term, correct? It turned out to be four and a half because of some uh, issues with our governor-elect, but uh, we now have a new governor, firmly in place, great individual, and so I'm I'm enjoying being uh, the past governor. Excellent. And I, I will be joining you guys uh, next February for a uh, clinical images session there. So I'm looking forward to seeing everyone at Wake Forest again. Um, Peter, today I'm interested in talking with you about a few things, um, particularly your 2013 Institute on Medicine as a Profession and Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation grants uh, to train your faculty and trainees on rounding at the patient bedside and how you successfully carried out this training, as well as uh, what some of your lessons about changing the culture of your department and training program were uh, around this particular endeavor. But first, could you introduce yourself, uh, tell me, tell us briefly where you grew up, attended college, medical school residency, if you did a fellowship or not, and what and where your position is now at Wake Forest? Absolutely. So thank you. Um, you provided a good deal of information already. So I was born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota, before my family moved to Cincinnati, Ohio, for my, where my father became chair of the Department of Microbiology at the University of Cincinnati. Went to University of Michigan, both for undergraduate and for medical school, and then went to UNC Chapel Hill for my residency in internal medicine. And I have to say that those three years in Chapel Hill were just wonderful. I had great teachers and a wonderful spirit about patient care. I had a few mentors there who uh, supported my interest in bedside medicine and physician-patient communication. So I decided to do a fellowship in the Combined Medicine Psychiatry Liaison Program at the University of Rochester. George Engel, who uh, was really father of the biopsychosocial model, was still active, and he was my mentor there. And it was really consolidated uh, my interest and commitment to practicing and teaching a type of medicine that I guess at that time felt more holistic or systems oriented and always involved the patient in whatever decisions were being made, at least if possible. From there I went to East Carolina University, was program director there and section chief of general medicine, came to Wake Forest in 2001, and you already mentioned that I was program director here until 2011. One other thing I wanted to mention is that throughout this time, I was actively and still am actively engaged with the Academy on Communication in Healthcare, uh, which really supports teaching relationship-centered communication skills across the continuum of healthcare. Oh, excellent. Um, and what are your favorite outside of work activities when you're not thinking and doing medicine? Yeah. Well. I'm a generalist at work, inpatient and outpatient, and I'm a generalist at home. So I, I don't have one focused um, activity. I 
uh, there's family and we have these wonderful pets. Uh, love anything outdoors. I run, I'm, uh, I fly fish. My wife and I have a small farm in the mountains of, in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and we spend as much time as possible there. And for many years now, I have practiced and often teach meditation. Oh, interesting. And is there fly fishing near the place that you and your wife own? Oh, yeah. My son used to be a, a professional guide, actually, before. He is now an orthopedic surgeon, which pays much, much better. <laughs> but in the mountains of North Carolina and eastern Tennessee, there's lots of fly fishing. And uh, particularly with my son, it's a, it's a way to see the world. Excellent. Well, uh, sort of diving in here, can you talk to me about the background to your applying for the grants that you received in 2013, as, as well as why this particular topic was so important to you and your colleagues at Wake Forest? Yeah, so one of the uh, uh, goals I had had as a program director was to put in place a more robust program of faculty development, and I I didn't really reach that goal, and so from after 2011, I was really looking for uh, uh, an approach that I could engage my faculty colleagues in bedside medicine, in teaching, and communication skills, and also uh, professionalism. So when the, propose, uh, the request for proposals came out from Josiah Macy and Institute for Medicine as a profession, it actually came to our academic dean here at Wake Forest, and he sent out a, uh, kind of made it into a contest, and there, there were several proposals made, and uh, happily the one that I and my colleagues uh, put forward was selected. So for me, this was a great opportunity to get some outside funding, as well as matching funds from the medical school, to develop a program that would base professionalism education at the bedside during rounds, something that we do every day, rather than setting up a separate uh, seminar series or lecture series that I felt would have the same danger of having a contrast between what's taught in a classroom and what could become the hidden curriculum of what's actually done on the wards. So we had um, a great team, and I certainly feel like that was uh, crucial to our success. We had our, our uh, new program director, Hal Atkinson. We had the director of the third-year clerkship. We had the uh, individual who was teaching the uh, bedside medicine course for the second-year students. And at the time, I was also leading the communication skills curriculum for the first and second-year students. So we had, a, we had a really robust team. Um, and just to be clear, could you just define what you mean, you know, for the, you know, during this podcast when you say bedside rounds or? Um... So for the, uh, for the Macy grant, it was focused on the presentation of newly admitted patients at the bedside. So that was the focus of the grant. Set up a system that would re-envision rounds as going to the bedside, entering the room, and having whoever was going to present uh, do so to the assembled team, and um, and that was the focus uh, for the grant. Okay, so just but there was a much larger view of uh, uh, you know kind trying to promote uh, this uh, integration of a interpersonal approach 
into something we do every day. So we, we were really re-envisioning what rounds could be. Um, so just just for the sake of clarification then, so when you're talking about bedside rounding, you're really not talking about, say, rounding in the hallway or the conference room and then popping right. in to see the patient for a few minutes to double-check some physical findings or gather more history and go over the plan. It's really right from the presentation all the way through. Well said. And in 2012, when we were putting the proposal together, the dominant uh, practice for the faculty here at Wake Forest was, as you had described, either in the conference room or in the hallway, giving the presentation, and then a more a briefer visit, usually led by the attending, going into the room to confirm uh, some history or physical examination findings, but that the bulk of the time was spent outside the room or in a conference room. And, and that's what we were trying to work on. And, and prior to the getting the grant and working on this area, what percent of total attending rounds time do, would you estimate was spent at the patient bedside and how about after the, the grant and your training had been instituted? Right. So I'm going to give you an estimate from before because we did not have hard statistics, but it was rare, meaning I would say 10 to 15 percent. Within the Department of Medicine, there were really only about four attendings who said, I am comfortable with and, and, and make daily uh, bedside rounds. There was a list of reasons that others felt uncomfortable doing that. By the end of the project, so by the end of 2014 and into the end of the data gathering in 2015, the, what we were hearing, and we have several different viewpoints from students, residents, and faculty, that about 75% of newly admitted patients were being presented at the bedside. And we're currently involved in a uh, study with the University of Michigan and the University of Kentucky. One of my colleagues, Will Lippert, is uh, our Wake Forest uh, uh, representative. Uh, we're kind of all chipping in. And just recently, we, we noted that 82% of new patients are being presented at the bedside, so in the, in the manner that would fit with the Macy model. And about 55% of follow-up patients are seen in a bedside rounding format. Wow, that's a, that's an astounding number, 82%. Um, hmm. um, how difficult was it to apply for and get the, the Macy grant and the Institute? Now, were they, they just one grant or two separate grants that were combined? One grant. One grant, okay. Yeah, yeah it, it was a combined request for proposals. And uh, I have to tell you, I was just so excited to see this possibility. And when we uh, began to think of how this grant, which was called Teaching to Professionalism, how we could link that to what we wanted to do in terms of promoting rounding at the bedside. Uh, so I was really excited, and so were my colleagues. Uh, we had some grant writing support from the grant writing office, of course, and had some some good advice in terms of how to, to lay out the, the budget and the uh, manner in which we were going to evaluate and disseminate the project. So all of that input was really invaluable. The, the final title we came up with was called, uh, 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 let me see if I got it, get it right. So it's uh, Breathing New Life into an Old Tradition. 
teaching professionalism at the bedside. Hmm. Excellent. Um, and how how difficult was it to get the grant? Or, well, e- I, you or know, easy? We, uh, we were successful. So we, we had the internal competition, and uh, our grant proposal was selected to be the Wake Forest uh, entrance, uh, you know, entry into the uh, competition. And uh, I believe we had, a, there was about between eight and 10 grants given out nationally. Uh, I uh, don't know exactly how many proposals went in, but obviously felt very fortunate that we received the funding and that the uh, medical school seemed to have no problem with the matching funds and also some continuation funds so we could can, uh, keep the project going for another year for data collection and to keep some of the workshops going. Excellent. Um, can you tell me about the curriculum you use to train your attending students and residents? Yeah, so um, the fact that you mentioned all three groups I think is a key point because we, we felt it was important to uh, kind of uh, meet each group where they were and get them interested in this. So I was leading the first year, first and second year communication skills curriculum, and we just made bedside presentations part of that. So our medical students presented the bedside from, I would say, the second month of medical school. So for them, it's pretty much old hat. For the third year students, particularly initially, because they had not been through those first and second years, uh, we made uh, bedside presentations part of the core curriculum for the clerkship and had a, a full hour to talk about it, to talk about you know their nerves and reasons they would not want to go to the bedside and reasons they would. Uh, so they were pretty much on board as well. I'm going to skip over the house staff for just a second and get back to them, but they are certainly key elements. So for the faculty, we uh, arrived at a plan for three workshops. Each of them was two hours. They were from 5.30 to 7.30 uh, in a convenient location here in the medical center. Uh, The first work, and I could go through what the kind of core thing for each workshop is, if you like. Would you like me to do that? Yeah, just maybe the the topic, because I think people listening to this podcast will find this really helpful. Yeah. Well, since it was a professionalism grant, the first workshop really looked at some of the principles of professionalism. We then moved on to some of the kind of core principles and kind of the pearls of effective bedside teaching, how to get buy-in from a team to go to the bedside, and then what we term a choreography for how you can make the whole moving of a team into the room and out as efficient and uh, useful, as high yield as possible. So that was the first workshop. The second was to move from just going into the room, which we called patient proximate, to really being patient-centered. And in that workshop, we uh, described and also had some time to practice some core communication skills, beginning with kind of basic etiquette of introductions and and listening well to people. We used a couple of mnemonics from the Academy on Communication and Healthcare to uh, elicit the patient's perspective about their illness. 
their thoughts about their treatment, and also respond effectively when emotion arrives. So really empathy skills and partnership skills. And part of that workshop then was to practice those skills with each other. The third workshop was almost entirely interactive. And what we did was set up a series of bedside teaching challenges from the pretty easy to the more complicated that were derived from our own experiences. And rather than hiring standardized patients or actors, we used our own medical students and house staff to take the roles of medical students and house staff and patients and families because they knew these cases and the whole, uh, you know, they could really enact uh, the core issues that were going on because they had lived them. And then faculty took turns trying out different approaches. For instance, you walk into the room and are immediately confronted with a very angry daughter saying, who's in charge? And um, you know, my, my mother was not treated well in the emergency department last night. Or a patient with, let's say, an addiction disorder and how to deal with that going into the room. Or a verbose family member who seems to be interrupting and derailing, or the arising of any strong emotion. So they all got a chance to, to practice this. We just filmed them with, uh, with an iPhone. Uh, so it was really low tech. And then we used, we looked at those again uh, when we did some of the refresher workshops later on. Hmm. And, and did the faculty at, in real time as they were going through these acted out but realistic scenarios, did they get feedback about how they'd handled them? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, well, so this is a very lively workshop as anything that involves scenarios or um, simulations or role play would be and we would always pause for feedback and since that's actually part of how we teach at the bedside is allowing some time for feedback when the you know when it's appropriate interesting um this is probably a silly question but uh did these evening workshops with the faculty include dinner oh they did oh <laughs> so, so that's so that's what grants really help you with so we were able to entice people with uh some decent food. What was what turned out to be kind of interesting, though, is that the attention to the food decreased as attention to the workshop increased. Oh, yeah, I imagine for that last one, yeah. it would have been hard to eat and yeah. participate. We, we, used, yeah, we used a basic model similar to Faith Fitzgerald of before the before the bedside, some of the tasks to accomplish with your with your team before you go into the room at the bedside tasks to accomplish while actually, you know, at the patient's bedside. And then after the bedside, so some time to debrief, have learning goals, follow up, maybe assignments of who is going to go back to the check on the patient to see how things went for, from their perspective. Hmm. And, and you mentioned that you had a refresher workshop for the faculty later on. How, how much uh, further down the road did you actually have those? Okay, so the, uh, you know, we had initially wanted to do a uh, controlled study, but in fact, we could only put these workshops in place uh, sort of linked to the attending schedule that was already in place. 
And by the way, we did three general medicine services and one geriatric service. So that was that was our focus. And it was 41 faculty who were involved and went through all three workshops. Uh, so for some people, the uh, the follow-up was as soon as four months, and for the others, it was about six months. Uh, it was a briefer workshop. We, uh, we reviewed some of the concepts, but we also did some appreciative inquiry where folks could talk with each other about what was going well and the successes they'd had. Uh, and it, it, the spirit was really powerful in there, and uh, many of the faculty were saying, hey, this has really renewed my interest in academic medicine. This is one of the reasons that I uh, wanted to go into academic medicine rather than practice was to have experiences like this at the bedside. Hmm. Did they? Did any of them bring up it being a source of new resilience for them in terms of enduring yeah, medicine? No. Uh-huh. I, I think that's what I'm. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think the word resilience had surfaced yet in our vocabulary. So what they were talking about was, and we, we recorded a lot of narratives from from faculty, from medical students, from residents, et cetera, but they would say things like, this renewed my interest in medicine, this reminded me of why I went into academic medicine, um, you know, this is something that I want to continue doing. Thank you for you know, kind of bringing me back to a patient-centered approach. Um, so it was overwhelmingly positive. Hmm. Um, and I noticed in the material I have from you um, and the grant and so forth that you had something called pearls, uh, sort of appeared right. to be maybe the backbone of the curriculum. Can you briefly explain what pearls is? Yeah, uh, I would say that pearls is the uh, pearls and... The I statements are the backbone of the communications portion mm-hmm. of this curriculum and of the professionalism aspect. So uh, PEARLS is a mnemonic that came from the Academy on Communication and Healthcare. The P is explicit mention of partnership. The E is um, kind of uh, dealing with and responding uh, empathically when emotions arise. The A is appreciation or apology. The R is respect for the person as a unique individual. Uh, the L is legitimization of their their struggles. And S is uh, personal support and a commitment to, to kind of ongoing relationship. And, and one of the principles of the uh, approach is not to use all pearls in every encounter, but to use at least one. And one of the ways that we track that is that before the bedside, using that Faith Fitzgerald before, at, and after the bedside model, uh, before going into the room, we might say, so with this patient readmitted with, uh, let's say, alcoholic pancreatitis, what might be some of the pearls that we would expect to use? Uh, just takes a few seconds to get a mention. I might then assign a medical student or other member of the team to kind of check for that and, and basically be looking for how did we uh, respond to the patient's emotions, and then that can be woven into the debrief after the after the visit at the bedside. And then the oh, let me just say the other mnemonic is the ice. Uh, is the ice? So that's uh, 
finding out the patient's ideas about what could be going on or what their understanding is of what's happening with their kidneys or their heart or whatever it might be, their concerns or fears, and also what they hope for. The E is for expectations, but really it's what are what is the patient, what is the family hoping will come of the, of the day, of the tests that are planned, the treatments that are planned, and maybe of the whole hospitalization. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and so at, at any point during the grant period or now, have you, you formally surveyed either the patients, the students, the residents or attendings, and, and maybe even nurses? I, I'd have to say they're a big mm-hmm. part of uh, interdisciplinary rounding. Yeah, I'm a medical director of a hospital floor, so definitely the, the nurses and staff are important. So uh, let me just say for the patients, so we got surveys from 6,600 patients, which is quite a few, and we used a modified uh, care survey, which is a little bit different than Prescani, but was being administered by volunteers who were visiting our floors uh, on a regular basis anyway. And uh, nine of 10 uh, professionalism dimensions, they, they, uh, they said that they preferred the bedside presentation. Now, we just, we didn't ask them, because we felt that patients might not know if they'd had a bedside presentation or not. So we were just asking them in general, how do you feel about your team's, uh, you know, uh, professionalism, how well they listen to your concerns, how clearly they explain things how much they uh, understand you as a person and that sort of thing. So we were, we were better on nine out of 10, and that was, that was very uh, in, yeah, important. Uh, for the students, we, we really touched uh, the entire first, second, and third year classes, so that's uh, you know, 600 students right there. And they particularly liked uh, the, uh, the learning that they received in terms of patient-centered care, both in terms of the diagnosis of the patient, but even more so how to plan a management uh, approach that was, uh, you know, had shared decision-making in it. Uh, The house staff, uh, we have some wonderful quotes such as, oh, you know, I'm reconnected with why I wanted to do residency in medicine. Um, Now, for residents, I would say they were the least uh, enthusiastic of the groups, still well over 50% said this is a, a good program. Uh, their major concern was efficiency. Now for attendings, the attendings said, oh, this is more efficient. The majority of our attendings felt that it was either the same or more efficient than presenting in the beds, you know, in the hallway or in a conference room. And many of them told me that they, they understood the patients some more. They could remember the patients so much, uh, so much better and got a, um, clinical information as soon as they walked in the room rather than hearing a presentation in the hallway where they formulated a particular uh, kind of preconception of what the patient would look like, then come in the room and find out that it was very different. So attendings uh, really liked it. Now, in terms of the larger multidisciplinary staff, uh, they were really on board, and we have taken the bedside approach to structured inter professional bedside rounding, particularly on the day prior to hospital discharge. So that's an afternoon bedside round focused on explaining what's happened in the, being sure the patient's on board with what's happened using teach back and also addressing concerns they might have. 
about taking their care from that hospital bed to whatever environment they're going to next in the community. That's been so exciting, and our nurses and our case managers uh, love it. And are you still doing the training of um, the students, residents, and the attendings? Yeah, and I, and I wanted to come back to the health staff because we had skipped over them. So the, uh, the bedside presentations are still a part of the first and second year medical student curriculum, and they learn, uh, they use pearls uh, consistently, and they use the ICE questions about ideas, concerns, expectations, and hopes. For the interns, uh, before, as part of their orientation, we, uh, we introduce bedside rounding. We actually put on a little, little show you know, with a patient in the bed and look at various strategies for going into the room and introduce them to the choreography of entering the room. And then during, uh, we have a three plus one curriculum now, so each intern uh, attends a four hour interactive skills-based curriculum uh, that includes ice statements and pearls and getting a chance to practice those. For the upper-level residents, I mean, it's absolutely key that the upper-level resident is on board with this and supportive of it. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, it could be kind of everything will sink if we don't have uh, them in line. So for the second-year residents, we review their experience with bedside rounding from their HL1 year. Uh, we talk. We really entrust them with the responsibility to lead bedside rounds and to develop their skills, both clinical and teaching, at the bedside. Uh, for the attendings, uh, we have not done another workshop now for a couple of years. Our hospitals uh, particularly are interested in um, kind of getting back to that. Uh, two of the leaders of hospital medicine do a brief uh, one-hour kind of uh, eat, uh, lunch and learn on bedside rounding, but uh, I think we have a challenge ahead, and I, I'm really eager to uh, to move forward. And I think we've learned a lot from the project and that the new workshops would be even more um, a higher yield and more efficient. It seems like to me that um, potentially, you know, if you have new faculty constantly joining your division, you know, especially if they're from somewhere else that wasn't really uh, bedside rounding focused, it seemed like perhaps it could it could start to drift away a little bit with that group, if you know, because they may just not be comfortable with it. Yeah, I I think the uh, the cult the center of gravity of the culture. Uh, inpatient teaching culture on general medicine and geriatrics has definitely shifted and has stayed shifted towards the bedside. Uh, maybe a little less in cardiology and nephrology, and we have a long ways to go with some of the other subspecialties. But that being said, um, the, it's, it's really important to continue to nurture uh, these growing plants, and people do come from many different backgrounds. And one of uh, one of our hopes is that people would be uh, have a common language like pearls and ice and other, uh, you know, before the bedside, at the bedside, after the bedside, sort of the, the structure of it. That choreography would be, uh, although can be flexible, and flexibility is really important in any kind of clinical teaching. But that the general scheme of how you enter 
what you do in the room and how you leave, what the responsibilities of each person in the room are in terms of entering orders, uh, in terms of bringing up studies, certain people with um, observation tasks to see how we're doing, for instance, with addressing emotion or explaining uh, a difficult uh, concept. Uh, and Paul, I want to just uh, maybe make another comment here, is that when, um, when I first thought about bedside rounds and bedside teaching, it, it just seemed like most of what happens in the room is information transfer. So somebody kind of, you know, having all the information about the history of physical examination and labs and just uh, taking really almost all the time at the bedside to disgorge all that and convey it to everybody else. Uh, we're, we're really trying to change the model that only part of the time will be for information exchange and a, a, a decent percentage of the time in the room would be spent interacting with patient and family, dealing with some of the relational aspects, responding to emotion, shared decision-making, uh, asking and responding to concerns and questions. Hmm. That's really the difference between be, being patient proximate, that is just in the room, but still just talking about the patient, and being patient-centered, which means having the patient uh, appropriately involved. So this is, needless to say, you put a huge amount of thought, time, and energy into creating um, this the bedside rounding model that you guys have at Wake Forest. So for someone wanting to change the culture of attending rounds at their institution to markedly increase bedside rounding, what are maybe a few of your best tips to make, make this change successfully? Yeah, well... Uh, that's a great question, and uh, I'm sure it needs to be uh, tailored to each institution. But I'll give you a few. Uh, I think it's great to have a, a small group that's interested in bedside medicine, is interested in going to the bedside on rounds, and uh, for supporting and sharing ideas. Also getting a grasp of the literature, which is pretty overwhelmingly positive about the benefits of bedside rounding and that patients appreciate it. You have to address the efficiency issue. Uh, if the attendings and the house staff feel like this is an inefficient way to round, I don't think you'll ever get out of port. We've been timing, although we have not done this formally, uh, I know when I'm on service I have a stopwatch and if we present in the hallway for some reason and then go into the room versus doing the entire presentation in the room, it becomes evident to the team that uh, it takes about the same amount of time. I think it's important to link this to other priorities that may be going on in your service line, your department, your institution, such as enhancing patient experience and the metrics of patient experience. I already, you know, told you that we saw some real benefits there. Uh, linking it to the uh, goals of teaching uh, physical examination, interview skills, and clinical reasoning. Uh, link it to the uh, importance of teaching and assessing communication skills and professionalism. Uh, the vast majority of our attendings say, hey, until now I really didn't observe 
communication between house staff and patients. I didn't really have a grasp on their professionalism sort of, you know, in the room, in the clinical moment. So that's another thing in terms of all that we have to do for the ACGME and the uh, milestones. And also then linking it to the multidisciplinary or interprofessional uh, dimensions of conducting rounds in a way that involves the whole team. Um, I think it's possible uh, that geography is really important because if the team is wandering all over a large hospital, it's really difficult. But if you have even a modicum of bed geography or regionalization of your patients, that really uh, improves. If your chair uh, is interested in faculty development and, and building a program, I think uh, that's really important. And then uh, getting some stories about uh, from, from faculty who, who are able to, to uh, explain how this has improved their experience as clinicians, uh, improved their experience as teachers, made their work more joyful, and Paul used the word resilience. I think, I think all of these things lead to a day in which, uh, you know, where the enjoyment uh, factor uh, increases and we're, we are more resilient in facing all the, the, the hassles and the, the difficulty of you know, getting things done and all the other, uh, the electronic health record, et cetera. So uh, for, for any uh, faculty who are you know, thirsting really for that connection with the learners at the bedside and with patients and families, it's, it's really a win-win situation. I want to take this opportunity to, you know, also for listeners that are interested in learning more about what you did at and what you are doing at Wake Forest. Um, there are a couple of articles I read in preparation for talking with you today, Peter. One was uh, returning to the bedside notes from a clinical educator, which was uh, an invited commentary you did in the 2015 North Carolina Medical Journal, which may not be <laughs> may not be a journal that all of our listeners subscribe to. So there's also uh, an article that you and uh, your colleague Hal Atkinson, who's currently the program director at Wake Forest did um, in medical clinics of North America called Patient-Centered Bedside Rounds and the Clinical Examination. I, I found that one in particular to just have a lot of um, really useful uh, details about getting something like this going and um, how you succeeded at it. Any other suggestions for resources? So the, uh, the group at Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati, led by Eric Warm, who's program director there, have put together a series of YouTube videos that uh, are a lot of fun and uh, instructive and can be used, I think, most effectively as triggers to discussing various uh, approaches and some of the challenges that arise when you uh, predictably arise when you enter the room. Uh, there's all the wonderful literature that's come out from Abraham Verkees and others uh, who have uh, tried to turn the ship and charted it back to the bedside of uh, clinical care. And, um, you know, so much of it is uh, so instructive and wonderful metaphors like the eye patient rather than the actual sick patient in the bed. And, uh, so I think those are really good resources as well. 
Excellent. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Eric Warm there at University of Cincinnati because he has kindly agreed to be interviewed for one of these bedside rounding podcasts. So oh, fantastic! Yeah, that'll fantastic. Be... Actually, the uh, the terms patient centered, patient proximate for just entering the room, and patient centered for uh, really uh, involving the patient and family. I I, uh, I borrowed from him um, with his uh, permission. Excellent. Any other thoughts for our audience as we get ready to sign off here? I think that uh, a number of the specific strategies that help attendees feel more confident are really important. Uh, Before the Macy Project, there were uh, a fairly fairly large percentage of our faculty who said, you know, I just don't have experience with this. I don't have role models who taught me at the bedside when I was in medical school or residency. What do I do if, uh, you know, if a patient becomes upset? What do I do if it's an addiction issue? What do I do with a verbose family member who interrupts? Um, you know, these are actually great opportunities to develop uh, a faculty program of workshops to address those. Um, our residents also had a concern, like, what about use of uh, medical jargon that might be confusing to the patient if we're kind of talking back and forth over them. Again, a wonderful opportunity to design curricula to address that communication issue. And I guess finally, one of the challenges I give to my team every time I come on ward, so I I ask them what are they concerned about in terms of bedside rounding. I ask them what could be some of the advantages of going to the bedside, particularly for themselves and then for the patient and family. And then even if they're reluctant, I say, come with me. Let's just do this. And then we'll talk about it afterwards, and I'll get your input. And one of the other challenges I put forward is, what can we do in the room that will benefit the patient? So that the way the patient is and the way the patient feels and the way the patient thinks when we leave the room is improved from the way they were when we entered. Uh, and they seem, that seems to make sense to folks that, we can make the best use of our time while we're in the room, from um, medical education, from decision-making, sharing the key issues in terms of data, and also engaging the patient, both cognitively and emotionally. So, you know, they, they, they rise to that challenge, and they get it. Excellent. Well, those are, those are excellent tips, and uh, there may potentially people in touch with you about your program there at Workforce. But, Peter, I wanted to congratulate you on on, on all this work because it is quite impressive and it, uh, I suspect, is probably part of your legacy there at Wake Forest uh, that you've created this very vibrant program for bedside rounding and patient-centered rounding. But I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, Paul. Thank you. You're a great interviewer. Well, thank you, Peter. I will talk to you soon. Have a good day. Paul? Yes. Okay. Can I keep you on the phone just for a second? Absolutely. Okay. So regarding resources, it just occurred to me that if people want to learn more about the uh, communication, about relationship-centered communication, they could uh, seek out uh, the Academy on Communication and Healthcare and I'm not sure exactly how to do that, but I, I would like to put in a plug since that is so uh, so central to this work. Okay. Yeah, definitely. We will leave that in there. 
I'm still recording. Okay, okay, <laughs> what I just did. <laughs> yep, totally. Okay. All right, All right. Peter.